welcome to the eighth episode of Breaking Down Barriers, a podcast for entrepreneurship community practitioners. This podcast is a production of Startup Space, an entrepreneurship community building platform. I'm your host, David Panraj. In this podcast, we will speak with some of the leading voices in the field of inclusive entrepreneurship and learn from their best practices to apply in our own communities as practitioners. Today, I'd like to welcome two of my favorite people in ecosystem building, uh, Andy and Beth. Well, David, thank you so much for inviting us to be part of this podcast. Um, We are humongous fans of all the work that you and the Startup Space team do each and every day. So thank you so much for having us um, visit with you today. Thanks, David. Really happy to be here as well. Can't wait to talk about all the great work that's happening out. Yeah, so we're uh, very excited to be talking to you today. We've been looking forward to this. Uh, You're doing so so much great work uh, through uh, InLab at HCC. Could you give us a little bit more about uh, the work that you're doing, uh, some of the programs you have, and the students that you're serving? Sure, I'll just start. Um, Maybe we'll take turns. But um, the main thing we're doing is we are trying desperately to scale authentic community impact through our our center called the InLab, as you mentioned. Um, when I say authentic uh, community impact, you know, obviously that's really important to us. It's like our core foundational element. We work very hard to include people into our programming that we believe are genuine, have something that is important to share. Um, and we only allow those people like yourself to get in front of our students and other constituents that we serve. The InLab has been a work in progress for about five or six years. Um, It's finally come to life um, over the past year in a formal sense. And it's our interdisciplinary institute for innovation at the college. It's essentially a, a holding company or entity at the college for all of our entrepreneurial and innovation activities throughout the college. Um, I'll let Beth talk a little bit here because she's really good at this um, about what some of the four pillars are that the InLab specifically covers. Thanks, Andy. I I, want to add on to something that Andy said as well, that there was intention in how we have built not just the InLab space itself and the programs that we offer, but the the intention around having a safe space for students to be able to share with one another ideas, uh, their their stories, um, and and that all was built with intention, and and we can discuss that a little bit more um, a little bit later on. But the in lab itself. Uh, before it was a physical space, it was really programming. And I think that's what's kind of cool about how this came about. If, if you think about ways that uh, money is, is spent at academic institutions or maybe even out in communities and building these physical spaces, um, we didn't do that. We, we really worked around this in providing rich programming and the physical space followed. So there was four areas that we were concentrating in, and they were the academic programs at the community college. 
So building out an entrepreneurship certificate program was the beginning. And we then found in order to support that academic program, we should have a second pillar, which is what we call in in education circles, co-curricular activities. And those co-curricular activities are workshops and master classes and mentoring and these additional things that add support to the academic program. But through time, we realized that, you know what, it's not just our students who need this co-curricular resource, it's our community at large. And so we really opened things up to the community to be able to engage with as well. The third pillar of the in-lab, again, it has to do with programming, is service to our veteran community. So we we did have, or we do have space available for veterans to, to come and, and co-create with one another, but the programming was in the form of everything from boot camps to eight-week-long non-credit programs, all concentrated on veterans where they could work together on their business ideas. And then the final pillar of the in-lab is our research institute. And this is where academia gets together. It's where we have uh, an innovator in residence. And this is us teaching other educators about the entrepreneurial mindset so that then they can go into their classes that are not entrepreneurial in nature and teach students about the entrepreneurial mindset, uh, self-efficacy, and these other great entrepreneurial uh, methods. And we really believe that this is probably one of the most powerful tools in the toolbox of the in-lab to start having an impact on equity, uh, diversity, and inclusion. David, I'm just going to add on to Beth's um, comments there. Um, you and I know each other for a while, so you already kind of know my life story. So you're going to have to suffer through an abbreviated version of it again right now. But I think it's important um, to share just because of the context and how it relates to the in-lab itself. So I am from New York City. That's where I was born and raised. And I've had really three distinct professional careers. The first was on Wall Street for about 14 years. And I always like to say my soul was gradually ripped out of my body over that decade and a half almost that I spent there. But I learned a lot. I learned about the world of finance and I had my first business venture toward the end of that career. But when I left um, Wall Street, I really embarked upon um, a series of small business enterprises, um, had two epic business failures um, that almost bankrupted me. I had two really good successes and two that I would consider just kind of getting out break even. So when I entered the world of academia, which is relatively new to me and and really is the third phase of my professional career, that's when Beth and I first linked up back in 2012. And we have always approached the development of our program through the lens of a startup not through the lens of an academic program, as Beth alluded to. Um, Everything we do is built around the foundation of testing, rebel rousing, pushing back against the naysayers, and 
to a college as large as the one where we work currently, that was relatively unheard of. And it caused a lot of pushback, you know, like, whoa, slow down or stop doing what you're doing. And when you'd ask, you know, why, why do we have to slow down and stop what we're doing? You'd get the typical response because that's the way we've always done things. And that just wasn't, that just wasn't acceptable to us, you know? So what we did was kind of interesting and this might help others that are sort of dealing with all of these barriers that often crop up. And, you know, we tend to look at barriers sometimes as being barriers when in truth, um, they're sometimes the, the greatest gifts or opportunities to, uh, to figure out ways to improve our world, our community, our lives, whatever the case might be. So what we did is we just focused solely on our customers, which are our students. And every time the college would raise a flag or a wall, we would just showcase the great success we were having with students and what an impact we were having in the community. And we finally reached the point where a, a sort of like phase two of our relationship with the college was, all right, they are doing some really good things for the community and our students. So um, we may not support them, but let's just get out of their way and let them do what it is they want to do. That was great. That was like a big breakthrough for us because- yeah. Andy, if you remember, part of that story um, was that we we really realized that to get through to the college, we had to triangulate. And mm -hmm. remember that? So we, yeah. we really first tried to find some internal champions. And so again, this is what you do in the early stages of a startup. You bring people on board that believe in what it is that you're doing. So we, we looked internally and luckily, I had some pre-existing relationships with people within the administration because I had been at the college for several years. Andy was relatively new at that time. And so we identified those key players who would get on our bus, so to speak, from the administration. But then we also realized that we needed to have students. And so starting to work with students, we surveyed students and and then finally, the third part of that triangle was the community and engaging with the community then forced the administration to start paying attention to what we were doing or all those naysayers. Remember that? Because we, we really had to work all three at one time. Yeah. I mean, I think what we learned through all of that and what I kind of knew just in, you know, it, probably not consciously, but unconsciously as a business owner is, you know, you can get people generally to act one of two ways. You can either manipulate them or you can really give them a reason to want to join your cause. And I think that second phase that I was talking about where, all right, let's, let's just get out of their way and let them do their thing was a bridge between um, them finally saying, hey, how can we help support you. It got to the point where the stories about our students and the successes that we were having um, caused the college and in many respects, parts of the community to voluntarily want to co-create with us. Um, I, I'm not a very good salesperson, but I know a little bit about sales. And I think one of the best methods of selling whatever it is you're selling 
is to not ask people to buy what you're selling, but to simply tell them, and you're really good at this, David, to simply tell people what it is you're doing and what your purpose is and you know why you're doing what you're doing. You're not gonna resonate with everybody, but when you finally do connect with the people that do get what you're doing, that's really powerful because then they're voluntarily wanting to kind of bring all of their resources to bear as well. And we're really proud of that accomplishment here at the college because we now do have quite a bit of administrative support at the college, which has been fantastic. And what that's done is only allow us to accelerate the work that we're doing. Wow, there's a lot to unpack there. And thank you for those kind words. I'll just give our listeners a little bit of context. The first piece is that you both are working in a community college setting. And we have a lot of our audiences that uh, are some way associated or affiliated with the educational system. And uh, the call out there for me, I've been talking to uh, some of our clients this past week where the highlight was community colleges are going to be front and center of the economic recovery. Because if you are a 40 something that's been laid off and you have two choices, either retool and go back to the workplace or uh, bet on yourself with your nest egg, the community college is a great place to start for either of those two steps. And, uh, and so that's a highlight there. The second piece that you mentioned is that you started this work in 2012 and we're in 2020. And that's kind of been the theme of all of our guests on the show. Ecosystem building, in this case, within the confines of uh, the educational institution system and community college system, takes years, if not decades. And you have to think about this in terms of the long game, not what can I get for this semester or this year. And just listening to you speak kind of validates that thought process that ecosystem building is the long game. There is a lot of foundational activities you have to do, like you said, in terms of convincing, in terms of creating buy-in, in terms of getting your stakeholders to understand the potential here. So uh, all of these are uh, just amazing facts that kind of reinforce uh, what we're all looking at in, in the field of uh, entrepreneurship ecosystem building. Can I just say one other thing? Because you just reminded me of this, and you'll relate to this. Um, one of the unique benefits of doing what Beth and I do at a community college, as opposed to say a four-year college or university, is that, and, and most people won't think of this as a benefit initially, but it actually is. Community colleges are one of the most resource-constrained um, education um, communities in the entire world relative to universities. And the one thing we know as small business owners and as aspiring entrepreneurs is that you must be able to swim effectively under extreme resource constraints and conditions of extraordinary uncertainty. Both of those things are enormously prevalent in a community college of any type. Um, we believe that those resource constraints um, are the fuel for innovation. When you don't have much, you're forced to accelerate building something um, with, with what you have. And I think that we've, we've done our part in at least trying to demonstrate the capability of doing that. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a that's a great point. And I think uh, as a small business, resourcefulness is uh, the number one way in which you're going to uh, survive. Let's shift a little focus to the inspiration. So I want to first ask you, why are you doing what you're doing? It sounds like it's a lot of heavy lifting and a lot of uh, hours spent putting your programs together. What's the inspiration behind this? And then second, I'd like to also talk about who is it that you serve and uh, the impact on underserved and underrepresented entrepreneurs. So why and then who? As a community college educator, our why is is almost just inherently within us, David. Um, it, it, it's kind of funny to think about. Um, when I first decided that I wanted to teach, I knew that I wanted to teach at a community college. It, it, it was like something that was just inside of me. It was, it was this way to be able to make tangible my need to give back to my community. You know, community is at the center of community college. You know, it's in our name. <laughs> uh, and I knew that I had my own stories to tell. I know that I had uh, my background. I just didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. I, and I, I needed someone to help guide me. And it took me some time to get there. I wanted to be that person. I wanted to be the person that could help people figure out what they wanted to do in their life. And I knew that the community college was the place to do that. And so that speaks to my why. I mean, teachers have a strong sense of purpose and difference making. And again, I feel that teaching is a talent. It's something that it just like if you're a great singer or you play an instrument well, or you're an artist, teachers are the same way. They, they have this ability to be able to transfer knowledge in a way that can be applied and change the trajectory of people's lives. And so that for me was really at the crux of me wanting to teach. Now, me teaching entrepreneurship, I'll be honest, <laughs> that was unexpected. Uh, I My background is marketing and public relations, and I really thought that that was what I was going to be teaching. And, and when we realized, when Andy came into the picture, and I realized that entrepreneurship was on the uptick, it shows like... Um, uh, Shark Tank were becoming really popular at that time, and articles were starting to hit the the uh, news magazines about entrepreneurship, and especially in our area here in Tampa Bay. We knew then that this may be an opportunity to put together some programming for students in entrepreneurship, and I wasn't expecting the journey that awaited me, and that I was going to end up not only teaching entrepreneurship, but getting involved with the, um, the way entrepreneurship is taught. And so that was really exciting. So my why really gets back to my why of teaching, and that is being impactful and transformative and um, really a fulfilling sense of, of purpose. I think for me, teaching isn't really the main thing that animates me. Um, Beth and I have something in common beyond the work we do. We both had parents and mothers in particular 
that were very formidable in helping to shape who we became uh, as adults. Um, so my mom, Mona, you know, she's no longer alive, but she was one of the most empathetic and caring individuals um, in my entire life. And she instilled those values in my siblings and I. When I was going through public school in New York City, um, from kindergarten through eighth grade, I was a racial minority as a white person. Um, I didn't know any different. I just was like, that's the way it is. And while I grew up in a middle-class family environment um, and we never went on vacations or we ate out very rarely, I never had to worry about where my next meal was coming at home. But some of my friends in school during those um, first eight years of my public education did have those experiences. And it always bothered me, you know, and, and my mom, you know, she would, she would help me to try to help them and teach me different things. But as I grew up and I went through this experience on Wall Street, which was so different, it was uh, all about making a pile of money bigger each and every day. It became apparent to me that I needed to do something much more profound with my life, especially in the name of my mom who had passed away. So for me, um, what I realized was that the best way for me to level the playing field of opportunity for others was through first starting a series of businesses and providing people with opportunities regardless of where they came from or what their backgrounds were. And then later that really accelerated when I was fortunate enough to have swindled Hillsborough Community College into hiring me back in 2012 that was a joke, bad one. <laughs> yes, because I'm the one who got swindled. I was yeah. on a hiring committee. <laughs> <laughs> so when they hired me, I learned something really interesting. Um, and I learned this through a colleague that Beth and I had. She's since retired from the college. Her name is Mary Beth Mobley. Um, I was speaking to her one day out of frustration over teaching and you know all this stuff. And she said, you know, Andy... Um, are you um, religious? Do you have any uh, strong beliefs? And I'm like, well, not really. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not that spiritual. Um, I believe in my, my religious upbringing, but I'm not very religious at all. And she said, well, you need to develop a sense of faith. She said, students that you encounter will rarely ever remember what you teach them, but they'll always remember what you did for them. And that really stuck with me because it struck me at that moment that um, my frustration was really over students maybe not absorbing stuff I was trying to communicate to them and teach them. But then I reflected on what she said and there were a number of instances where I had done something for a student and those students had reached out to me later on to thank me for what I had done. Might've been something as simple as getting them set up with an Acorns account or a Betterment account to begin investing some money and saving for their future and them feeling really empowered by that and wanting to let me know that. And I think that that's really what my purpose ultimately is. My purpose is to try to lift up other people and provide them with opportunities through entrepreneurship education 
that they otherwise would never be able to realize. Andy, I have to break it to you. Uh, you said at the top of that that it wasn't teaching. What you just described is teaching. <laughs> it, it is effective teaching. That's the whole point of what we do is is to uh, impact students and and lift them up and and be there for them. So that's kind of funny. <laughs> that is uh, funny. I will tell you one thing that um, that's that struck me when I first met both of you, and I haven't really shared this, but I think uh, uh, if if there's a founder or somebody that's looking to start a business is listening to this podcast, I think having two people be part of an initiative, uh, no matter what it is, I think is way more powerful than one. And I think even statistics proves that when there is when there are co-founders, uh, ventures tend to be more successful. So I think you, you both complement each other so well, and it could be part of how successful you are. I don't know if somebody's brought that up before, but uh, you know that's part of my personal experience working with you. I think you bring great energy to whatever you're working on. We hear that all the time. And yeah, we do. Yeah, we do. We have the great fortune, uh, especially pre-COVID, of traveling to these conferences and stuff and sometimes presenting at these conferences. And we're always approached invariably by an individual. Normally it's an education conference that so might be like a faculty member somewhere. And they're like, oh my God, how do you do all the stuff you guys talked about? It's inspiring it's really amazing. It's this, it's that. You know, I just, I can't get it going at my college. I'm trying. But then they pause and they realize, you know, that the question they're asking is they're asking a team of people, in this case, Beth and I, you know, and they're realizing in that moment that they're alone, you know, that they don't have an Andy or a Beth where they work. And we kind of give them that suggestion, find your Andy or Beth, find your colleague that you can lean on. Because trust me, there have been moments when Beth was ready to pack it in and I had to um, coerce her and lift her up and convince her to keep going forward. And then, of course, there were many instances, probably more so on my end, where I was like, I've just had it with this bureaucracy. And then Beth had to rein me in and kind of get me to the other side. So having a team, David, I think is is probably the most important element of standing up any kind of um, enterprise or program. And having the right having the right team, Andy, and yeah, I think yeah. the team that Andy and I have is is empathetic. I think that's why we work, Andy. We we get each other and we can put ourselves in each other's shoes sometimes. Yes. And that's why it works. We have great empathy for one another. I I'm a mom of a a middle schooler and Andy's kids are out of college. So there's times where I need to be more family focused and Andy understands that and and he does what he needs to do to support me. And and Andy is a New Yorker at heart who's go 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 go. So sometimes I have to be empathetic to that. <laughs> that is so true. So tell us a little bit more about who you serve. Kind of bring to light. I know personally because I've been to your classrooms and I've met with your students and your founders. Help our audience understand the community you serve, specifically focused on underserved, underrepresented entrepreneurs. And why is it that what you do helps break down barriers for everyday entrepreneurs trying to start businesses? Okay, that wasn't one question. That was like 29 questions. <laughs> you can take as many minutes as you need to answer that. <laughs> All right, I'll take one part of it. So 
for those that are less familiar with community colleges, community colleges are one of the most uh, diverse, inclusive, and equity-focused um, uh, ecosystems that I know of. So at our college, which is based in Tampa, Florida, in Hillsborough County, Florida, has about 46,000 students across five different campuses. Um, at the college, the average age of our students is somewhere between 29 and 32 years of age. So it's a non-traditional age demographic at our college. The student population, of course, is extremely diverse across uh, racial lines, um, but across many, many other factors as well. I think the best way I can answer that piece is to give everybody um, it's sort of like an overview of what the typical cohort in our entrepreneurship program looks like each and every semester beyond those factors I just described. So in our program, approximately 35 to 40% of the students are traditional 18 to 24 year old uh, first time in college kind of students. About 35% of our students are people that have never been to college and have been in the workforce for about 15 years, are sick of it, can't stand working for the man, want to finally take action on an idea, so they enroll in our program. And then the final pot, piece of the pie in our cohort are people with advanced degrees, people that have baccalaureate or master's degrees that want to go through an extremely experiential and applied and accelerated entrepreneurship program that has a lot of rigor wrapped around it. Um, and they come in, um, all of them think their ideas are great, by the way, when they first come in. Our job in helping to kind of get them grounded is to teach them that the one thing they have to do every day is to try to kill the business idea, go after those biggest and hairiest assumptions that they have. And I think the beauty of um, the cross-section of our student body, the diversity of it, the inclusive nature of it really helps to make a wonderful learning environment for our students. They're very supportive of one another. Beth mentioned empathy. There's an awful lot of empathy within that classroom for people at different uh, stations in life. And it's really a wonderful thing to kind of step back and be able to observe each and every day when you go to work. And, and again, I think it gets back to the, the entrepreneurship programs at community colleges have that access because community colleges are an open access institution. So here, people from maybe marginalized communities have access to education. And then the next step into that, into the narrative is the program itself in entrepreneurship. So if we we're able to get students into the door of a community college and then into the door of the entrepreneurship programs. Now we're able to make some serious headway. So we've had stories uh, from entrepreneurs, some whose businesses have been successful, some who realized, 
oh, this idea really stinks to, to other entrepreneurs who realized I'm going to be an entrepreneur. I'm going to work within a, a, another company. Um, and th- their stories are powerful. I, we Last semester, we had uh, a young lady in the program who uh, was having to hide from an abusive home life. And so she was in a shelter and, and you know, having to literally hide away from an abusive husband with her eight-year-old child. And she came into the program. She is an artist. And she was not, you know, it's so, it so powerful about the entrepreneurs that come in here and, and you know, having this access uh, is that they're not coming in necessarily to start a business so that they can make a bunch of money. This same young lady wanted to come into the program to put an idea together that helps other women like her to deal with the trauma and to deal with um, the the bad things that were happening in her life. And, and so she comes in with no idea of what that's going to look like. And she leaves with a business model. And, and I mean, how powerful is that? Um, where this access, just being able to get into the door when, when you're someone who's coming from that situation, coming through a program where you're now able to have more self-confidence and see that your talents can be used for good and uh, teaching social entrepreneurship to, to students like that. And that's just one example, David. I mean, we've, we've got lots of examples of students who are in the middle of life crises and they entrepreneurship is the way for them to get out of that. And I think it all has to do with access. Like the, the community college gives these communities, the access, and then having a robust entrepreneurship program is is even better. It just really, really changes communities. David, I'll just add to that a couple of closing points on my end, and then I promise I won't. He always me. does. I can never have a last word, and I can never have a first word. Do you ever notice that? That, that <laughs> we will make sure you get the last word on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> a couple of things. One... Um, the average number of years that a community college entrepreneurship educator has in actually practicing entrepreneurship is a little, little over 15 years of practice. The number of years that a university entrepreneurship professor has in practicing entrepreneurship is a little over two years. So there's a vast difference in terms of the applied nature of the faculty at a community college delivering this type of program versus a university. I've long thought that entrepreneurship should really only be taught at a community college where it's probably best served, but it's not. It's taught at many different levels and for good reason today, because we know that the skills or competencies that a student learns through entrepreneurship education may not lead to job creation and may not lead to new business formation, but will lead to that student becoming a much more value-added employee um, armed with those competencies that entrepreneurs possess. So that was the first thing I wanted to mention. The second is that we operate um, on the non-sexy side of the entrepreneurial fence. On one side, you have 
these small to medium sized enterprises that we work with, you know, people opening up localized uh, retail locations or service businesses or whatever the case might be. And then on the other side, the sexy side are those hockey stick tech companies. So there's a lot of attention focused on those companies because of the Silicon Valley narrative that is out there. Um, so we kind of own that space locally here. You know, we, it's, a, it's a sort of a patronizing place to be because a lot of people will tap you on the back. Oh, that's nice. You're helping everyday entrepreneurs start up a small business, you know, but um, I'm working on an app that tells you your shoelace is untied and I'm doing a hockey stick at the end of my financials. Um, so we're really proud of that, though, because we see direct impact of those everyday entrepreneurs that cycle through our program. Now, something we didn't mention that is important to mention is, and you mentioned it, I think, David, is we've secured a funding to allow us to have a seed fund. So students that come through our entrepreneurship program qualify to apply for up to $100,000 in funding for their businesses. We've had that program for about a year and a half. We have funded 14 student businesses thus far. Those 14 businesses this year with COVID factored in should generate about $1.2 million in aggregate revenue across the 14 companies and create eight to 12 new jobs in our region. Um, now to a lot of people listening, they might think, well, that's kind of small. That doesn't really sound like a lot. But to us, that's an enormous win to be able to point to that kind of data point that's real and tangible, and then to cite a story like the one Beth cited about one of those students or another student that came into our program, very, very timid, shy, introverted. She and her husband had just started um, a home renovations company. She came through the program, um, outstanding student, they applied for funding through our seed fund. Uh, her husband, who didn't come through the program, he had to sit in the side of the room. She got to sit at the table because only the student can present to the funding committee. She was really nervous, but man, did she kill it on her end with her presentation. She did a great job, secured the funding, came back to Beth and I about two months later and said, you know, our business is taking off. Um, this year, they're going to uh, experience revenue growth with COVID of over 200% increase in revenue over last year. But she came back to us and she said, you know, the business growing is secondary. I want to share something with you that I didn't share with you before. So we're like, well, what is it? She goes, you know, my husband, he always respected me as his spouse, but never respected me really as being part of our business when we were first starting out. But after him observing me in front of the funding committee and seeing me be able to secure that funding and then put that money to work in our business, I have like this new level of respect for my spouse and it's been life-changing for me. It's those kinds of stories that I think drive Beth and I to try to do more and more and more um, each and every day. And we feel so fortunate to have a job that lets us do that. Wow. That's powerful. So in closing, I'm going to ask you both one question and I want Beth to go second so Beth can have the last word. Yeah. 
hope I have a good answer now. <laughs> you, you'll have time because Andy has to go first. <laughs> because so, then he takes all the good stuff. <laughs> okay, Andy, it's only 30 seconds. Okay. Yeah. So uh, if the you had to provide one piece of advice to practitioners of ecosystem building that are listening, what would be that advice in terms of, you know, how do they stand up their own programs or anything that you want to give us a piece of advice? And then, Beth, I want you to also respond, but then follow that up with how can people learn more about your work? And we're going to add that in the show notes. So Andy, uh, you know, what is the one takeaway? Beth, what's the one takeaway? Plus, how can we learn more about your work? Uh, and then, um, And then we'll wrap it up. Okay, I think the, the 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 thing I would mention on that front, and I think COVID-19 has really brought this to light, is the critical importance of authentically figuring out ways to work with one another, um, including competitors. So I think the piece of advice I would give is to find different ways to co-create new partnerships even with people that might compete with you. Because as we work together in a more meaningful way, I believe that that is the one thing that can heal all of the divisions that exist, not only in our society and country, but around the world. If people learn to work together that might have differences outside of community building and outside of all of the critical Um, issues that communities face, but can come together to solve all of those community challenges, I think that that could communicate a really loud message to everybody else to kind of get on board with that approach toward community building. And I think the second thing is something you already mentioned, David, is it is a long game. It's not something that happens overnight. So you have to have a commitment to it. Uh, that is real. You know, it can't be, well, this is kind of cool. I want to maybe dabble in, you know, trying to build something. You have to have a really serious commitment to it because it's brutally hard for a long period of time, at least in our case. And uh, in order to get through all of that, you have to really have a strong sense of who you are and what you want to accomplish. My advice is not to shrink it and pink it. So I don't know if you're familiar with this, but the NFL and some other sports teams were famous for trying to bring on female fans. And they employed a marketing strategy of let's shrink it and pink it. So we just make the jerseys smaller and put them in pink and women are going to buy it. And I think that in order to reach those underserved communities, there has to be authentic communication that is brought not just to these communities in a top-down way, but as Andy mentioned before, have them co-create, work with you on projects that are impactful to their communities. And we gave examples of the community college because that culture has already been built. We, We know how to work with underserved communities, uh, people that are in the margins and not part of the, the narrative. You know, make the margins so small that they're a part of the narrative and, and have them talk with you about what the needs are in that community and the way that you're able to best 
help and represent and make those businesses um, survive. And, and I think that we've been able to practice that. The, that so that's my advice is not to shrink it and pink it. Don't, don't make a one size fits all. This has worked in the past and um, for, for other communities, you know, incubators and accelerators and co-working spaces and uh, where to find capital. That doesn't necessarily fit into the entrepreneurs that we serve. So we had to co-create ways that did fit. So, so Beth, uh, tell us how we can find out uh, about uh, InLab and your programs. Yes, you can find the InLab very simply by going to the Hillsborough Community College website. So it's hccfl.edu slash InLab. That's one easy way. And we're also located on all social media. And all of our social media has the exact same handle. And it's InLab at HCC. So in lab at HCC, we can be found that way as well. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. We are such huge fans of your work and we look forward to bringing you back uh, in the near future to learn more about your work. But today was very enlightening. Uh, thank you for everything you're doing for underserved and underrepresented entrepreneurs. Thanks for listening to this episode of Breaking Down Barriers, a podcast for entrepreneurship community practitioners hosted by David Ponrash. Special thanks to Andy Gold and Beth Curley for joining us. Cover art by show manager and creative director Mackenzie Dial Fritcher. Edited and produced by Lauren Bernard. If you'd like to suggest interviewees, new topics, or just want to reach out, please email us at podcast at startupspace.app. All Breaking Down Barriers episodes are available on our website or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Please feel free to rate, review, and subscribe for all the latest updates.